Thank you for that. Well, isn't it true that there are many things in life which are incomprehensible? There's lots of things in life uh, that I find incomprehensible. My wife tells me that I cannot comprehend prepositions when it comes to the location of items. Where are my socks? They are under the towels. They are the towels? What? That's how the conversation goes quite regularly. Under. Incomprehensible. I cannot comprehend why anyone, for any reason whatsoever, would buy a Prius. And yet they're everywhere. There's many things in life that I don't understand. Uh, Well, good news for me, in the month of January, two verses from Proverbs have been hanging over our heads. Isn't it just a wonderful thing that we can um, do the series in the book of Proverbs that we did last year? where we're doing chapters of the Bible, whole concepts in in, in one sermon, and we're going relatively quickly. And at the same time, we can circle back to two verses and occupy ourselves for a month, because the Word of God is is that deep. Um, These two verses have been hanging over us. We've been giving our attention to them. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths, the important verse that I'll keep misquoting because of memory verses from when I was a child. Remember last week we said that trusting in the Lord, it comes at two levels. This is what we've been considering. First of all, it means to trust in Him as Lord and Saviour. It means to entrust yourself to the Lord, um, as well as meaning trusting Him with the details of your life, trusting His truth and His character and His will. And last week we considered the, the, the first good reason that we have to trust the Lord. We trust the Lord because He is good. It's important that we understand that and it's important that we keep that in mind as we get into what we have to hear this week. God's goodness remains very relevant in what we are discussing today. This week we have another reason to trust our God. We trust in the Lord because He knows better than we do. He knows better than we do. At this point in our series, I think it would be useful for us to consider just how extreme the biblical call to trust in the Lord is. It goes further than we may have realised. When we hear that phrase in a vacuum, we might think that trusting in the Lord means that we are generally inclined to find Him reliable. But it goes so much further than that. The extent of this call comes out quite clearly in our passage here from Proverbs, where we are told to lean not on our own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Can you see that this isn't just a call to generally trust the Lord, but rather it's a call to trust him in a certain way. This is expecting of us a kind of trusting, which is so radical, so, so extreme, so countercultural that it's difficult for us to even comprehend. It's incomprehensible. It cuts against the whole of our human nature to trust in the Lord or anyone else in this way. Uh, there's a call here, but that call comes with a promise. The call is lean not on your own understanding. And the promise is... He will make your path straight. There is an action and there is an outcome. The action, trusting in the Lord, leads to the outcome of His taking you in the right direction. 
because he knows the way and we don't. Let's consider that metaphor. I'll take some poetic license here and colour in, in between the lines. Imagine we are walking down a forest road through the hills, but the lighting grows dim and eventually a heavy fog uh, settles, which makes visibility come almost to nothing. I don't know if you've ever been into the alpine places of the world where the clouds can move in in a matter of minutes and suddenly you can't see two feet in front of your face. And so when we come to a, a fork in the road, we are unable to see which path to take. One of the paths will lead us to our destination, but the other path will lead away from it. And besides this, the paths have not been well maintained. They contain many, many hidden perils, places where we might stumble over in the darkness, even if on the correct path. Fortunately, with us in the darkness, there are two guides who claim to know the way. We figure that even in the dark, we can grab hold of one of these guides and they can lead us down the right road and away from the pitfalls. One of these guides is named Your Own Understanding. It's a strange name for a man to have. Blame his parents, I suppose. He's saying, follow me, I know the way. The other guide, named the Word of the Lord, is reaching his hand out to you, but you can only hold on to one. They are leading in different directions. And in this picture, of course, your own understanding is leading you the wrong way but the Lord is navigating true. Isn't that radical? It's absolutely extraordinary. We are being called to trust the Lord more than we trust ourselves. Let that sink in. Doesn't that set off alarm bells inside your head when you hear that? It does me. There is a, a world-weary skeptic inside of me. He might be the one named my own understanding. And he says that anyone who says something like this to me is not to be trusted. Anybody who comes to me and says, you need to not trust your own understanding, rather you need to trust me, I'm being conned. That's the conclusion that my nature immediately comes to. I don't trust anybody like this. Like, just imagine if some governmental figure comes along, uh, introducing some radical new policy, uh, and everything in you is like, well, that doesn't sound good. And then in order to comfort you, they say something like, don't believe your own instincts, trust me more than you trust yourself. As a general rule of thumb, if one of those figures comes along, do not trust that person. That is a tyrant. This is not how we interact with one another. To trust another human in that way, with the exception of small children with their parents, it's just not a healthy dynamic. That's not how human interactions work. And the kids even grow out of it surprisingly quickly, don't they, parents? They begin to question at what? The age of a month, I think. Can't you hear every angry atheist on the internet rushing to their keyboards after seeing that Bible verse, excited to finally have proof that the Bible really is oppressive and dangerous and you should just chuck out the whole thing and put it in the bin where it belongs? Lean not on your own understanding. It's bonkers. But of course, what I have uh, been dancing around is the fact that this verse is not calling us to submit ourselves to some mere human in this way. No, it's not causing me to submit to any human in this way. All other people have the same problem that I have. We are all subject to the human condition. Another person is just as 
limited and imperfect and short-sighted as me. Not even in the most significant of human relationships, not even in marriage, are we called to treat each other like that. You don't lean not on your own understanding in marriage. There's a lot of trust there. We definitely influence each other. We give each other complete and unique devotion. This is Christian marriage. But we don't surrender our rationality to one another. You're still responsible for your own thoughts and actions. Only with God himself are we called to this complete surrender of reason. Isn't that incredible? Implicit trust, even against our own better judgment. Lean not on your own understanding. It's extreme. It's radical. It's not that we don't think or reason as Christians. Do you understand that? It's that we trust God and his word more than we trust our own thoughts or reason. And certainly more than we trust our own instincts. This is all, of course, drastically countercultural. Okay, in our post-modern, post-truth world, the view is gaining in popularity and influence that ultimate reality, truth, is to be found within. That my lived experience is more important than any kind of external or objective reality. This is, this is the way people are beginning to view the world. Not only are people rejecting the idea that goodness is to be found in restraining many of our natural impulses, in the modern view, what I desire is becoming my identity. Especially in regards to, for example, what's happening in the, in the gender and sexuality space, in this new worldview, to deny myself is to lose my existence. But this is where we come to why it is so important that we trust in the Lord. We need to trust in the Lord because we are fallen beings living in a fallen world. Genesis 3 tells us of how through Adam and Eve, the human race rejected God as God and so we became utterly sinful. Not as bad as we could be at all times, but rather never as good as we should be at any time. Every part of our nature has been tainted by the stain of sin. And frighteningly, the biblical explanation of our sinful state includes our own minds. Those of you who are here for our series in Romans might remember what we read in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, which says this about the fall. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Think about what that description of the fall says about your internal world, which our culture would have you believe is so trustworthy. The human race is futile in their thinking. And our foolish hearts have been darkened <laughs> and claiming to be wise. We have become fools. We are blind to our own flaws. The reason why this is frightening is that my thoughts and my feelings are an unreliable witness. I should not trust them implicitly. 
If my own thoughts are darkened, how dark is the darkness? If my perception is not just fallible, but guaranteed to fail me, how dangerous the peril. If the flaw is in my heart, how inescapable the problem. Do you see why this is frightening? Without some external rescuer, my desires will assuredly lead me to spiritual ruin. That's all they've ever done. That's how we got into this mess. And so because of that, leaning on my own understanding shows itself to be the danger that it is. <laughs> Think of that inner skeptic I, I described before. If I trust someone like that, they will take advantage of me says the inner skeptic. But don't we see, I take advantage of me. Why do I trust myself? What a ridiculous thing to do. Who has failed me more often than me? I need to be somewhat wary of myself. Mr. My own understanding, trying to be a bully. My instincts, thoughts, and feelings are important. They matter. But they are not a sufficient guide to lead me into what is true and right and good. But there is one who is. Isn't that good news? There is one who is good at all times. Who knows right from wrong in all things at all times. Who sees clearly with purpose and accuracy. There is one who has perfect understanding and insight, and he is light without any darkness. He is judgment without bias or partiality. He is truth without error or compromise. He is love without exhaustion or wavering. There is one who is trustworthy beyond myself. There is one who knows all things, the beginning from the end, grace and truth, met together and enfleshed, and from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. There is one who is not stained by this broken world, but who instead came and lived a perfect life as truth embodied, and died not for his own sin, but for ours, and who rose again, having defeated Satan, sin, and death, and who did all of this according to his definite foreknowledge and plan. There is one who we are called to trust in rather than our own understanding and this kind of person is the only kind of person worthy of that trust. Where our understanding is darkened and futile and arrogant, his understanding is understanding. It is not surprising then that when we lean on him, rather than trusting in our own understanding, that he makes our paths straight. He brings into line what is crooked. Far from being a crushing burden, a risky danger, to place ourselves into his hands, of all hands, becomes liberating in light of his ability 
and our inability. The call comes with a promise. He will make your paths straight. He will be your guide and your navigator. I don't know about you, but I think that that is a deep comfort and an assurance found nowhere else. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Okay, I can hear you say, you've convinced me. It is wiser to trust in God than to trust in my own instincts. And yet, how many questions follow immediately after that? What does it look like? How do I do this? What shape does it take? And the bad news for you all, I suppose it's bad news for me as well, is that I could at this point literally describe any part of the Christian faith. (laughs) Every detail of your life is touched by this principle. And so we've got to limit ourselves to pick a few. This cuts against any sense of arrogance or self-sufficiency or pragmatism in our faith and any part of our lives where those would be an influence is relevant here. In every area of our life, we are to submit ourselves to God's word and he will direct your path. It touches everything. And so I picked two things. I've loaded myself to two. It's January. The kids are in the room. We've only got so much time before they turn into pumpkins. I have here this morning a a corporate application, a, a together application, and an individual application. I hope that you find them both helpful. Let's consider corporate worship. Do you know, do you know, do you know what I mean by that? It's, it's what we do when we gather together today and we, what we're doing now. This is corporate worship. I could do a whole sermon on this, so I'll try and be brief. I'll do a mini-sermon on this. The short version is, when it comes to our worship together, methods actually matter. I don't know if you know this. One of the ways that the postmodern view of the world has affected the church is to convince many of us that when it comes to church, everything is up for grabs. We're free to change everything, whether it be as a result of some uh, missionary desire to be relevant or some hyper-individualistic experience-seeking. Whatever the reason is, it has become entirely normal for people to feel free to reinvent church. Have you heard this language? It's in pastor world all the time. And you can do that without a thought given to whether or not you are breaking something important. This attitude, which is very common today, puts us at odds with the entire history of Christianity. It's worth pointing out. We have to understand, here's the principle, what is unchangeable before we can responsibly change, before we can responsibly contextualize. One thing that is big at the moment is a thing which is being called online church. It's been around for ages, uh, but during the COVID era, it suddenly became much more common for people to talk about this much more, much more frequently, a thing. I was shocked <laughs> at the beginning of the COVID era when we, we downloaded some sort of digital tool by which we could stream services out while everybody was, was locked in their homes um, to discover that that tool hadn't been invented for COVID, do you understand, but already existed because that's how some people do church all the time. Online church, they call it. 
I've heard talk about churches having, these days they call, they call it an online campus, which is the merging of two terrible ideas. <laughs> online church and campus churches, these might make sense according to human reasonings about efficiency, governance. It can, in a rational world, right, to, to, to our intellects, it can seem like a good way to, to cast the net widely and to be inclusive. How many spiritual principles are we fulfilling by trying to catch as many as possible? It's easy for me to comprehend why people want this. But just neither of those words stack up with what the word says worship together is meant to be. That's the problem. Let me explain. Uh, it's probably, at this point, it's probably worth mentioning, we have a, a live service stream happening right now. There are some people watching this on the internet. I'm not coming at you. I can't. You're on the internet. You're not here. So you're safe. But it exists for a reason, right? It exists for those who are too sick to come, those who are traveling and couldn't make it, those who are not part of our church and, and looking for a church and want to see what worship is here is like. That's why we have it. What we do not have is an online campus. What a, what a ridiculous idea. God's word tells us that there is such a thing as acceptable worship. Here's your first principle. There is such a thing as acceptable worship. Hebrews 12, 28, for example, says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Is it too much of a stretch for me to suggest to you that if there is such a thing as acceptable worship, then there is also such a thing as unacceptable worship? We don't hear this very often, but it's true. You can worship the right God in the wrong way, and he finds that unacceptable. <laughs> it sounds like it matters to me. Pragmatic postmodernism cannot stand this principle. They have nothing in common. It harshes their mellow, you could say. But trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. What is the difference between acceptable and unacceptable worship? Well, it should be said that the most important principle of all starts with the heart. It does. It's not about a method. It's about a motive. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The method by which you and I worship our God is different than exactly the way it happened in the temple, but this, this still applies to us, does it not? We bring our tithes and our offerings to God as part of our worship. We serve Him using our gifts and our talents. And it is possible to be bringing an offering to God which seems like a good thing and for Him to find it unacceptable because of what is happening in your heart and in your life because of your relationship with others, for example. First, go and be reconciled and then bring your offering. I mean, we think of Cain and Abel in Genesis, both of whom bring an offering to God and only one finds acceptance. Why? Because of their motives. I have been having a foolish and sinful fight with a brother or sister. 
I have sinned against somebody and then I rock up at church to take communion and to raise my hands in the singing and to give my offerings as a worshipper. Do you want God to find your worship acceptable? Then don't give it to him in hypocrisy. Give it to him in reality. Let communion be a symbol of a reality which existed in your life throughout the week. Walk with him in fellowship, uprightly and sincerely. First be reconciled. It starts with the heart and then offer your gift. Acceptable worship begins with the heart. But then we see that it also changes our actions. Trusting in the Lord and not leaning on our own understanding means that we trust in his forms of worship. We must continue to meet together, according to his word. Hebrews chapters, uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The one who engages with church merely online cannot fulfill this verse. We must continue to meet together. Why? There's two reasons given. One, to build one another up. Which means if you choose not to come to church, your absence hurts us. We need you. There is, there is something which the Lord intends to do through you here today that you can only do by being here. And secondly, because the day is drawing near and we need to be built up ourselves and made ready for that day. And while we are here, we are told in God's word that we are to conduct ourselves in an appropriate order. There's, no, there's a whole sermon here as well, but I'll limit myself. Um, but 1 Corinthians 14, 39 and 40 says this to us, so, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. There is a structure to the way a combined worship service works. There are limits, there are boundaries. They've been put in place by God, and I'm mountaintopping here, but let it be sufficient as an illustration that decent order is not ours to completely overturn. There's a right way to do church our freedom to innovate exists within the unchangeable walls of God's word, which means that even in something as practical as running or participating in a worship service, we are called to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding. Instead, we are to start with the word and what it tells us to do. And once we've exhausted that, we can apply our own understanding to the grave. I mean, we're in a Baptist church here now. So I have to point out that the early Baptists were willing to go to jail over this where many of them died. I don't know if you know the story of what was happening in the world at that time. But among other issues like uh, ordination, the early Baptists refused to submit to the state church's rules regarding the structure of their worship services. The king had authorized the common book of prayer and said, this is the order of service for all the churches in England. I don't know if you've ever read the common book of prayer. It's pretty good. There's lots of great stuff in there. We might not agree with absolutely everything, but we'd agree with most of it. And some parts of it aren't just pretty good. Some parts of it are really, really good. 
it is overwhelmingly similar to our faith and to theirs. So why, if presented with an order of service book that overwhelmingly resembled their own faith, would they have been willing to go to prison rather than obey the book? Do you feel it? What's the big deal? And many of their contemporaries could not understand what they were thinking. They thought they were nuts. What are you doing? Just be judicious in how you apply it. Compromise. Take the good, leave the bad. There's plenty of good in there. Help us reform from the inside. What's the big deal? The big deal is that it's not the Bible. And they believed in sola scriptura. They trusted in the Lord with all their hearts and lent not on their own understanding. Their belief was that trusting in the Lord meant (laughs) that they were not to lean on their own or anyone else's understanding. The Bible alone is the guide for acceptable worship. And they refused to submit to any other pharisaical standard. They held to this view so passionately that they were willing to spend their lives. And because of them, we are free to worship our God according to our conscience. Let us pass that blessing on to the next generation. All right. Trusting in the Lord changes the way we do church. What about our lives as people? Let's talk about self-denial. One of the hardest things about being a Christian is self-denial. We've talked about this before. The modern view is that if I want a thing, then it is a human right. To call me to deny myself in anything is to limit my expression and to undermine my identity. And that view of the world is ruining a lot of people. Because my desires are broken. They are not a guide for what is true or good for me. Some of my desires are good. Some of my desires are traitorous and will bring me to harm. Consider these words from Jesus in Luke 9.23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus describes being a Christian as living the crucified life. Crucified in what way? (laughs) To be a Christian is to have died with Christ to our old sinful nature. We no longer live according to sin. We no longer live as slaves to sin. We no longer live under the power and influence of sin. And instead, we are called to daily live in a state of self-denial. If anyone would come after me, he must 
deny himself and take up his cross daily. To be a Christian is to daily say no to what seems natural to my fallen nature, but contradicts the word of God. And by grace, which we have received, we are being transformed into a different kind of being who lives a different kind of life. And this this bit is crucial, excuse the pun. We are being transformed to live a life which is better than the life that you would live if you lived according to your own understanding. You will butt up against this in so many places. The culture I live in combined with my own reasoning, which has been shaped by the culture that I live in to a large degree, makes many things seem moral and normal. It's going to happen to you all the time. And then if your Bible is open, you're going to have this repeated experience of finding in God's word <laughs> that some part of your life is out of bounds. It's, it's, it's not right. It is different to what he describes. And so, trusting in the Lord and leaning not on your own understanding will take the form of you taking that desire, that craving, that thing which you like but contradicts God and handing it over to Him and letting go of it and taking up your cross and walking away. What about our approach to hardship, for example? My own understanding will never be quick to conclude that God's will for my life involves hardship or suffering. <laughs> if, if God's word did not exist, if I didn't have to live in his reality, God's will for my life would always be my victorious blessing. That sounds wonderful. I'll take that. God wants me to have a Porsche. Not the new boring ones, the 911 from the 80s, the good ones. You, know? you can fix it yourself. It's wonderful. I will always choose to run away from difficulty, if given a choice. Hardship's horrible. Why would you choose that? It's ridiculous. Nobody wants that. But the Word tells me something else. It tells me to count hardship as discipline, which comes from my Heavenly Father because He loves me, and tells me to count it as all joy. It tells me that my suffering has been granted to me as a gift as well as the right to suffer in his name. It tells me that now, for a little while, if necessary, I have been grieved by various trials. And First Peter says that that has happened so that the tested genuineness of your faith, tested genuineness, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. My own understanding leads me to live for me, for what is comfortable and for what is pleasant. But trusting in the Lord leads me to embrace all the many seasons of life 
as part of his great redemption plan to bless me, his child. Waiting for him to bring to completion the good work which he has begun in me. And when I do that, what a precious promise. He will make your path straight. He will strengthen your weak knees. He will not abandon you. Brothers and sisters, we are called to trust in our God to such an extent that we trust him more than we trust ourselves. And that is the sanest of calls. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, this is, this, is, this is radical. I must confess, <laughs> I don't trust you like that. In the big category of life, sure, I, I've given myself to you. I know that you are God and I am not. I know that you are the Savior and I am not. But even, even as a Christian... When it comes to the details of life, I am very quick to take back what I have handed over. It's frightening. I am a lot like a child learning to ride a bike <laughs> who is just too afraid to, to commit to the healthy balance and who grabbing for my own safety prevents my own safety. It's hard to trust you, even though we have every good reason to trust you. Lord, the problem is not with you, it is with me. As I reflect on my life this week and in the week to come, there are lots of things about my life which I do not comprehend. There's things where I, I don't know why this would be your will for me be they circumstances, commands. But help me to trust. Help me to believe. Help me to see you clearly for who you are. And help me to live in light of what is real rather than what feels real. Father, trusting in myself has only ever brought me pain. And trusting in you has brought me the gift of life. Would you rescue us all from the suicidal impulse to lean on our own understanding? Would you forgive us because we have not treated you as you deserve? And would you bless us by directing our paths and leading us to yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who came and rescued, along with whom we take up our cross daily.
in his name we pray.